The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Live from sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday! <laughs> I couldn't resist uh, steal someone else's lines. Anyway, welcome, Radicals. My name is Joshua Sheets. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I guess inside all of us, somewhere deep down inside is a frustrated radio DJ. So today I use my radio voice. Let's use some radio announcements. And let's talk about live Q&A. I got some good ones for you today. I hope you enjoy it. got a recording for you of a live call with patrons of the show. Uh, this was a number of people who joined the call uh, recorded live on Thursday, and we got together and answered questions. We got a bunch of good questions in today's show. We talk real estate. We talk about how much money to put into uh, deferred retirement accounts versus to keep in uh, non-taxable, excuse me, uh, uh, non non Non-qualified, there's the word, non-qualified accounts. Uh, We talk about bank on yourself and the use of life insurance policies um, for uh, cash accumulation. We talk about investment options and portfolio allocations. It's just basically real live conversations. This is something I've been wanting to do a little bit for a while. Um, You know, I wrestled seriously with uh, my my show concepts, uh, frankly, over the last few months, I wrestled with it a lot during December of 2015, trying to figure out, like, am I doing what I need to be doing? Should I be adjusting things? I seriously pursued um, the option of of switching over to a radio show, uh, doing a live show. I ultimately decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. I'll share more details on the stuff in, in the beginning, but one uh, late at a later date. But one of the things that I did want to do was bring more live interaction onto the show, and so I decided to do it with a conference call format. And so I invited all the patrons uh, of the show to join this conference call and to have a live Q and A. I'm, I'm intending to do it. Um, more going forward in the future. You can let me know how you think it worked out. If you feel like this was valuable content, I hope it was. I really enjoyed the live interaction with the audience, and I, I think it'll make for good podcasting. So uh, so that's the story. Um, check it out. Check out the show. Let, let me know if you enjoy it. I do intend to do it fairly regularly. I'm still working through my vision and the changes. I've got to change a few things, but it's it's been challenging. So I'll share that story in the future and tell you what I'm thinking uh, and get your feedback. But for today, enjoy the interaction with the audience and enjoy the live call. Uh, before I hit play on the recording, those sponsored of the day today is Jay Fleischman and the Student Loan Show. If you have student loans, call Jay. You've heard me do this ad I don't know how many times, right? Go to studentloanshow.com slash radical. Have Jay check out your situation. Good guy, sharp guy, student loan attorney. He is the guy to go to uh, if you are in any kind of difficult student loan situation. If you have loans and you're looking to know, is there a little shortcut for me to be able to pay these things off sooner? If you have loans and you're falling behind, Go to Jay's site and get a consultation with him. While you're there, subscribe to the Student Loan Show in iTunes and make sure to let him know that I sent you. Uh, with that, here is the recording from the Q&A. All right, Radicals, I've been looking forward to doing this. I had a lot of fun doing these uh, conference calls, and we're going to kind of create a hybrid today of Friday Q&A shows and <laughs> call-in talk radio. Tell me your name and uh, where you're calling from. My name is Joel, and uh, calling from Texas. And I've got a question. Um, you've helped me in the past with some perspectives when I was able to get a much better paying job. And I've followed a lot of that advice. I've maxed out my 401k and my health savings account. And now looking for other places to invest. And um, uh, so far, I have not invested in any uh, taxable uh, mutual fund type uh, um, investments. Instead, I'm looking to go into rental properties. Uh, already have three units and looking to add one or two more this year. My question is if you could give me some uh, items to consider as far as leveraging it and doing it faster 
or slowing it down and paying it cash. Just some things to consider in that decision, please. The age-old question. <laughs> you didn't start me with a nice easy one. You started me with the one that real estate investors constantly debate <laughs> on, on all sides. A couple of quick questions before I answer. How long have you been investing? You mentioned you have three units. Uh, what type of units are those and how long has it taken you to acquire those? Sure. Um, uh, I asked you a question about a year and a half ago. And since then, I bought a duplex, which is two units, and then uh, moved my own residence. So uh Rented the old residence, which was paid for, so that's uh, three units. Uh, so managing these three units now for about a year. But uh, I had some property management experience for other people's properties, just things I was doing on the side, which was uh, more than five years of you know collecting rent and, and keeping properties up. So uh, at least a year of my own experience, but more if you consider some others. And what's your long-term investment goal? Uh, to build enough uh, passive income, uh, so-called passive income. Um, so that I could uh, have some career options, you know, maybe build a lifestyle around uh, uh, some part-time work and, and have my properties support uh, my family and I. What's your target monthly income that you're trying to hit from your portfolio? I'd like to hit about $4,000 uh, of, uh, of monthly income from the portfolio so that I could uh, basically slow down on my day job. Okay. So I think in watching this study, the real estate people, um, I'm a novice when it comes to personal experience, but I have studied it a lot f- from an outsider perspective. So you need to filter my answer through that and then work with other people who have been through up and down market cycles. Uh, really, recently released the show of my um, interaction with John Schaub. And one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to meet Schaub personally was because he's an old real estate investor. And he's been he's been doing this for 40 years. So he's been through four um, recessions. He's been through every market cycle. And I really appreciate his type of perspective in a situation like this. I've only been through a couple of recessions in my adult life, um, lifetime. Uh, so that that's the reason why I went to seek him out. And you should seek out people who have been through different market cycles. Uh, but in looking at leverage, leverage is always it's always a double sided sword. It can it cuts both ways. It can ha- massively improve your returns, but it can also sink you if it's employed improperly. The most reasonable, sensible approach that I can find is to use leverage especially in the beginning, and to use it safely, uh, to use it carefully, to to consider how you do it. And that's what's so unique about real estate is that real estate, the debt that you can put on real estate is unlike debt on other types of uh, assets. Uh, a couple of examples. Uh, number one, if you were going to use debt to invest in stocks. Let's just keep it very simple. Ignore options trading. Let's just say that you're going to establish a margin account on your on your portfolio and you're going to borrow uh, you're going to borrow money to buy and sell stocks. That can work really well and can increase your returns, but the problem is that if your investments don't work properly, then you run the risk of facing a margin call for all of the money. And the same thing can happen in real estate if you don't do a good job. So the sp- most famous story, uh, probably I'd say the most famous spectacular story of that would be uh, Dave Ramsey. Uh, when he began his career in his uh, early 20s as a real estate investor, he built his uh, career on buying lots of units. And as he tells the story, at, when he was 26 years old, he had uh, he had control of about $4 million of uh, of property values, if my memory is correct. But the majority of that was financed on short-term notes with a local bank. And so when the banking industry hit some uh, hit some challenges, and I believe his bank was sold, all of a sudden his bank was sold and he found himself sitting there and looking at a uh, a new loan officer who didn't know him, who's sitting there and saying, "This who is this 26-year-old kid who owes us millions of dollars? And so they started calling his notes. But when he had financed it with this rolling line of credit, these 90-day notes, he couldn't get out of the deals in time for him to satisfy his financing obligations. He wasn't able to unravel uh, his situation quickly enough. So he tried. He and his wife, they they sold everything just as quickly as they could. As he tells the story, they went through and, and were fire sailing every uh, single property they could come up with uh, as quickly as they could to raise cash to pay off the loans to keep things afloat. And then ultimately, they never um, – they, they, they ultimately, however, didn't 
couldn't do it in time, and then he wound up declaring bankruptcy. So if you finance real estate wrong, then you can severely you you can you can cause yourself major problems but if you finance it right you can you can massively juice your uh juice your returns and so the key is to i think um harness the power of real estate but to make sure that you have a plan excuse me, harness the power of leverage but to make sure that you have a plan to avoid the disaster um when i went to shab's seminars one of the things i really appreciated about his seminar was right in it. He put one of his newsletters, and the newsletter was exactly that. It, that was the title of it: "Leverage: Harnessing the Power and Avoiding Disaster." And in that specific article, the newsletter, he goes through and he talks about how to borrow properly, and then how to cover your risks, uh, and how to make sure that you manage the risks uh, of of the individual transaction. So, if you compare the risk. Let's compare just the t- two very simple things. Of one is you owe the you owe the debt on uh, ninety day notes, like the famous Dave Ramsey story is, or the other is that you owe the debt on a thirty year mortgage. Well, which of those is riskier? If you owe a two hundred thousand dollars on a ninety day note with a callable that it's due at the end of ninety days, if you you've got to come up with two hundred thousand dollars to satisfy that loan, and so you're basically you're if you don't have the money, you're constantly floating it from one debt to the next, which is what Ramsey was doing. If you owe $200,000 on a 30-year mortgage that's a fixed rate, you know you're only going to have to come up with, let's just say, uh, $1,200 to to make that monthly payment. So with that monthly payment, you're going to be able to go ahead and satisfy the debt as long as you have enough months. So the key is to leverage the debt, leverage the the, the real estate Plan for it. Have enough cash so we've got the cushion so you don't get your back up against the wall to have to make a bad deal. And then make sure you always have multiple uh, multiple exit plans. So one of the things that uh, – and I reached down and just picked up the manual from Shab's Building Wealth One House at a, at a Time seminar. And one page I remembered from it that, that answers the question uh, specifically is here are the factors that make the debt that you owe risky for you. And so you want to – if you want to keep your debt low risk, you want to make sure that you uh, do the opposite of these things. Okay, so the first factor that makes debt risky is a high payment. If you have a high payment amount, by definition, you've got to come up with more money. So the lower you can get the payments, the less the risk that you face. This is why when you're financing real estate, the longer you can stretch the loan, 30-year loan instead of a 15-year loan, the better because it reduces your risk. It reduces the payment amount for you. Uh, next payment that makes debt Risky is short-term debt. The longer the term of the debt, the less risk because the more time you have to come up with the money. If you set up a five-year loan uh, with a balloon payment at the end of five years versus a a 15-year loan with a balloon payment at the end of 15 years, by definition, the longer-term debt is less risky because you have more time to work things through, more time for your investment strategy to pay off. The next thing that makes uh, debt that you owe risky is balloon payments. So that's really, really tough. If you've negotiated something where you're making an interest, you're making interest only payments for five years, but at the end of five years, you've got a balloon payment, you've got a problem. So balloon payments can be very, very um, risky to you. They might be a useful tool, but they will increase the risk. The next thing that increases the risk of the debt that you owe is personal guarantees. So if you've personally guaranteed a debt, that means that all of the rest of your assets are subject to the claims of the creditor. So in the interview that Shab gave on radical personal finance here, uh, he talked a lot about that. He talked about never to never give personal guarantees for the debt. Now, there's a difference between having a legal personal guarantee and having your word. Um, Shab told me and told us at the seminar, he said, I've never once in my life not paid a debt. And to me, I believe that is the moral and ethical thing to do. You always pay the debts. So if I give you my word, whether or not it's attached to that I'm going to pay you, whether or not it's attached to a specific asset doesn't really matter, um, I will pay you. However, there's a difference between doing that as your word of honor versus the legal guarantee. Because if you have given a guarantee on on an investment that goes south and now all of a sudden your creditors can come and invade your other assets to pay the guarantee, that might destroy the whole plan. So you want to avoid personal guarantees if at all possible. The next two factors and these are the last two is the next factor that makes debt risky is illiquid collateral. So the example in real estate would be a duplex. Your duplex is going to be harder to sell than is the single family house that you own. Now, duplexes are really not that tough to sell generally, 
but your duplex would be more liquid and easier to sell than a uh, a ten story office building that you invested in. Uh, an office building might be very illiquid. The number of buyer potential buyers is much smaller. Their expertise with regard to real estate is much higher. Uh, and so it's going to be much less liquid than a single family house or even a duplex. And so again, that was why um, Schaub argues for uh, investing in single family houses. They're very liquid. You can sell them quickly. And then the final uh, factor that makes debt that you owe risky is negative amortization. Uh, and where if you have a loan where you're not amortizing it, it can just continue to grow up and that makes the debt riskier. So those are some factors to pay attention to. High payments, short-term, balloon payments, personal guarantees, illiquid collateral, and negative amortization. Finally, I do think that when you're building a financial independence plan like you've described, the goal should be to set up the portfolio first. So my personal real estate investment plan, and I have to struggle with how much time and energy and money to devote to this for me versus uh, into real estate versus my business because I have better leverage and higher returns in my business, but I don't want everything to be in my business. So it's a challenge for me. My personal plan is build the portfolio first. So if I have a target monthly income of $4,000 per month, the first thing is to build the portfolio toward that. Next question is, how quickly do I need that $4,000 a month? So if you wanted to be as a full-time property investor, and let's say you're putting together um, different deals, uh, and you, you can you, – okay, so you're borrowing the money, and you've got $1,200 of cost, um, including you know, proper allowances, and you've got $1,600 of monthly income. So you've got $400 of cash flow on each property. Well, the first thing to probably do would be to work – what I would do in that situation is I would try to accumulate 10 properties, each of which are cash flowing $4,000 – excuse me, $400, which gives me $4,000 per month. Then the goal – now that I have the 10 properties and you buy them slowly, little by little, uh, now I have the 10 properties. I've got the cash flow, which allows me to be that full-time real estate investor or that part-time job, part-time business, and part-time real estate investor. Then – I want to divert that cash flow. You would need to have a little bit of excess if you're just living on that. I want to divert any excess cash flow to paying down the mortgages on the properties that I most want to have forever. And so you pay off the mortgages on your best properties. And if you have some market appreciation, let's say that um, you you wind up and your, your properties have increased in value by 20%, go ahead and sell three or four of the properties that you don't want anymore, take the profits from that and use that to pay off the the mortgages on the properties that you really want to have for a long time, your really good properties. That way, you're managing your debt, you're managing your risk, you keep minimal uh, cash out of pocket until you built the portfolio, keep maximum uh, money in the bank, which helps you to get through. If you make a bad deal or you have a bad couple months with, with no tenants, cash in the bank helps you and then manage the business to produce the cash flow. That's the faster way. That said, uh, nothing wrong with doing it slowly, doing it with cash. I know people very, very well personally, um, some in my family, who uh, have built a, a very nice real estate portfolio with never borrowing a dime. And they just did it, um, never borrowed a dime, financially independent um, with a number of properties, and it works great. And there's no risk from that. It's not the most efficient way to do it, but it's the lowest risk. And, and these these people, they value more than anything else, they value their personal freedom and their personal autonomy. So um, that's my answer to you. Joel, any follow-up question on that before I go on to the next one? That's perfect, um, especially with regard to the level of risk because um – in all my scenarios, I was either you know taking bigger risks to get more properties quickly, or slowing it down, uh, but always using some leverage, you know, thirty-year mortgages and so on. Um, I did buy Shab's book after hearing your show, and I'm going to look into this newsletter as well. Uh, but perfect, appreciate the help. Thanks, yeah. Joshua. Reach out to him, send him an email, and ask him if he'd be willing just to send you that copy of his uh, newsletter. Uh, the title of it is. Um just tell him you heard it on the uh, me mentioned the title of it. The title of it, I closed the book, is um, just basically on leverage. Uh, interestingly, he has a course. I want to take his course. I haven't taken it yet, but I want to take his course on investing for retirement with real estate. But he d- uh, devoted an entire course to this question, and it's actually his opinion that everyone, even heading into a full-time retirement, that you should always maintain some – leverage on the portfolio. Uh, But just because you have some leverage on the portfolio doesn't mean you have leverage everywhere in the portfolio. So the goal is to get your favorite houses completely free and clear, eliminate that risk, but to continue to to use leverage because leverage gives you better negotiating power. And that's probably the biggest 
thing that's not talked about is uh, is how much if you are an owner of a of property if you own that property free and clear you don't have much negotiation power so it's actually in some ways riskier to you uh, to have a property owned free and clear than it is to have a property that's highly highly leveraged best example he gave some examples where he had lent on a property he was the owner of the property he had sold it using owner financing to an investor and so uh, i'll use numbers that are close to the real ones because i forget the real ones but uh, he sold the property to the investor for two hundred eighty thousand dollars. but this was before market values declined dramatically and now the property was worth about a hundred and uh, hundred and eighty thousand dollars so there was a hundred and eighty thousand dollars of missing equity now he was the lender on the property and the investor is is having trouble getting rents enough to cover things. Now, is he worried about that situation as the lender? The answer is yes. He's worried about it because the the investor has all of the has the the leverage. The investor can walk away from the property, return the property to Shab, the owner, uh, and can basically walk away because he's like, well, I lost the hundred thousand dollars. So what he did was, as the as the lender, he picked up the phone or or they they had a conversation. They said, let's talk. And because um, the property was fully leveraged, the investor had leverage over the lender, uh, had power over the lender. So they renegotiated the deal. Schaub knocked down um, – they, they refinanced the property, knocked down the terms, cut down some of the, the, the money. Schaub ate some. The investor ate some and they refinanced it so that they could keep the deal going. And that's one of his big emphases, which, which I think is so fascinating. When you deal with people, when you deal with owner financing, you can work the deal. And, even, and if, as, if market conditions change, everyone's eager to revisit it and keep the deals win-win. It's different than being in an adversarial position against Bank of America. So definitely check out his stuff. Uh, of reason I went and reason I've profiled him on the show and I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to talk to him and see if I can um, resell some of his courses is it's no nonsense. It's no junk. It's just clear, actionable advice from someone who's been there and done it. All right, next question. Who would like to go next? Hey, Joshua, this is uh, Matthew from Tennessee, and I want to keep it on the real estate um, while we're, you know, while we're on the topic of it. And this is kind of a personal question for you. And so don't feel, so don't feel like you actually, that you actually have, have to answer it. But my main question is when you're talking about like investing in real estate for an extended period of time as your investment plan, have you, based on your research, come to like a, uh, a return on investment percentage that you're trying to hit between maybe like a range or anything like that? That's a hard question to answer. So I would exp- – so the answer is no. Um, I haven't hit one of those and it's because depending on the way that you measure the rate of return and depending on the strategy that you use, the rate of return can vary significantly. Um, when I personally uh, – what I'm personally looking forward uh, to, what I'm trying to build for myself is I'm trying to build passive income. So what that means is I'm not interested in flipping houses. Um, and you could create if you could flip a house properly and 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 in four months do a flip where you net forty thousand dollars and you used investor money. I mean, your rates of return individually measured can be very very high. Um, I'm not looking for that at this point because for me and my business, my online business has the potential enough potential for those higher rates of return for me to be satisfied. Um, what I'm looking for is passive income uh, or as passive as you can get with real estate. Real estate is never going to be truly passive. There's always going to be some level of management or involvement, but I think I but I think I can get it passive enough to where I'm happy with it. And it, and I don't want it to be fully passive because I want to use it as a tool where I can teach, you know, my children, I can I can involve other people in my business enterprises. So, I think it's passive enough for me to be satisfied with it. In that situation, I expect my rate of return in the beginning to be relatively low in this sense. Um, I don't think my, my first deal will, will probably be my worst deal. I'm inexperienced with negotiation. I'm inexperienced with finding the properties. I'm inexperienced with all of the strategies. Um, so I expect my first deal will probably be my, my worst deal um, and I hope to get better over time. And I also am planning to use um, – my own money and not to try to work fully with investors. And that's due to the stage of life where I am versus other other stages of life. If I were – so 
again, Shab, <laughs> he's going to get a lot of publicity today, which I'm happy to do because he's a great guy. When he started, he went to co- he went to college, and in college, he studied real estate. He knew that he wanted to do real estate, so he actually got a degree in real estate from I think Florida State University. And at a point in there, he got um, he got a uh, a real estate agent license, but he started investing. And when he was investing in the early years, he had no cash. So in real estate, if you have no cash, then you've got to um, develop a strategy that allows you to use other people's cash to put the deals together. When measured in percentage rates of return on money, the rates of return there will be very high. And I believe that if if I went broke today, one of the business models I could do would be to build a real estate um, investing business. It's a skill set that I that I have a good basis in and that I could develop. And I could start with no money by finding the deals and putting them together. So the rates of return on money are going to be very, very high because you're using other people's cash, assuming the deals work. But you've got a lot of time involved in it. Um, So for me, I'm I'm looking for a place to invest my money. And so in that situation, uh, I'm willing to take a lower – rate of return on paper. What he teaches is is his 10-10-10 rule, buy the property 10% under market value, uh, invest, uh, buy the property at 10% under market value, make sure that you get a 10% cash um, on cash, uh, excuse me, 10% rate of return on your cash down payment. And what's his last 10% rule? Totally blanked on it. And pay no more than 10% down. And so those are his rules. So initial your initial um, money coming out of it is going to be 10%. One example that he gave in that seminar, continuing the, the real estate theme here, is he gave the example of, of how if you work with an investor, you can juice your returns substantially. So here's the, here's the money on, that he gave as an example of, of what the type of deals that he, would, he used to do. So let's say that you start with 50, you have $50,000 um, to buy houses. And you buy four hundred thousand dollars worth of houses. Could be could be multiple houses. Could be one house. You buy four hundred thousand dollars worth of houses. You invest fifty thousand dollars into those houses. Um, you buy them under market value. You have hundred thousand dollars of equity, and you have three hundred thousand dollars of loans on those properties at a four percent interest. Um, you turn around. You sell them for four hundred thousand dollars, and you sell them to an invest. You sell them out. Um, financing it, you collect $32,000 of interest. He goes through this. I'm going to skip the numbers because it really works well visually. Um, He goes through this example in his course where where you're demonstrating that you have a $20,000 interest income on a $50,000 investment, which is a 40% rate of return. But then what you can do is you turn around and you sell an investor a $40,000 interest in the deal that you put together that will yield them the 10% return that you're charging, which means that you now have um, – you're now getting $20,000 of net interest income. You're paying $4,000 to the investor, and you're netting $16,000. So your original investment was $50,000. You pulled out $40,000 and sold that to another investor. So you now have $10,000 of capital tied up in it, and you're getting $16,000 of interest income, which is a 160% um, rate of return. So when you're in the beginning, if you talk to most investors, when you're in the beginning, you, you do these very aggressive deals, Very, you're scraping for money, trying to find as much, many investors as possible. Those rates of return are very, very high, but they require a ton of work. Down the road, you might start to move toward that passive income uh, model, and you're not just trying to do deal after deal after deal. You're trying to generate the income from the portfolio and sit back and spend the money on your lifestyle. Does that help? I, I got a little tongue-tied in the middle there with all the numbers, but does, is that helpful? Uh, yes, Joshua. That is that is really helpful. I was just wanting to – I guess I was just trying to, to go through that framework myself that if I had X amount of money today in 15 years based upon this parameter of returns – then what am I expecting to have in 15 years to be able to hit those goals? I guess it's more of the framework of how, how is this fitting into my goals and that's, you know, uh, or how can I hit my goals in the future? But I, you know, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to answer that in terms of like how you're looking at it right now from your perspective with half, you know, your business and also something that's cash flowing on the side. 
right? Rate of return matters hugely. And this is why I actually asked Shab, I think it was 119, it was the episode with him. I asked him what his rate of return was. If memory is right, he said 20% last year. Uh, that was what he made. Now, um, who knows how those, I bet you his rates of return were much higher in the early years than they are now. Uh, but uh, he said they were 20% uh, last year. And I thought that was uh, probably fair. Uh, I've worked with some local investors. I've worked with, I have some friends of mine who work locally as real estate investors and their entire business is putting together these deals. They do the entire thing. They all started broke um, with no money. They put together the machine, the business machine to find the deals and then they solicited the investor money, getting people to invest money that was in their 401k or their IRAs into their company and then they scrape the profits on the top. When you can scrape profits off the top of putting the deal together and you're investing very little amounts of your money, you're getting a very high financial rate of return. But as always, remember, you also are doing the work. So you're doing very active investment management for that higher rate of return. Um, that's what – when I talk about on the show about passive versus active, what annoy, in, the, in the stock market, in the stock market basis, it's not uh, – if you study those who are strong advocates of the passive investing approach, they don't necessarily say that an active investor can't ever beat the market. What they say is that an active investor can't beat the market in a predictable fashion and can't beat the market net of the costs of, of finding those deals. Uh, that may be true in the S&P 500 and especially it may be true if you're running a, a mutual fund and you're trying to find very large deals. I'm convinced you can generate much higher rates of return locally in an inefficient market like real estate uh, because I've just seen too many people uh, have friends I graduated with, with, from college with and they're millionaires, um, some multimillionaires based upon their real estate investment uh, projects in the last decade. So um, I've seen it done. All right, next question. Hey, Josh. I got one Hi, Josh. Okay, Dylan, go ahead. And then uh, whoever that was next, you'll be up next. Go ahead, Dylan. Okay. Um, recently, you actually yesterday did a podcast on that touched on the topic of putting money into an IRA or the TSP in my case um, versus like a taxable account or some other fund that you can get access to your money quite a bit easier. And I just had some questions on the decision procedure. Okay, go ahead. Where to put funds. Um, so right now I have seven years left on my contract in the military um, and I'm putting about uh, 750 a month into the TSP. Um, and another 200 a month into a robo-advisor account. Okay. Um, and you, you made me hesitate a little bit uh, for contributing so much to the TSP. Um, I feel like I might be missing out on on some opportunities that might come up in the future. So I was wondering how, how you go about deciding, um, or how would you go about deciding in a case like mine, wh whether to contribute to an IRA or a taxable account? What types of opportunities would you look to invest in outside of your TSP? Um, well, recently, uh, real estate has become, I've, I've been starting to read about it, I guess, um, listening to Bigger Pockets podcasts and all that. Um, so eventually, I would like to, to get passive income through real estate, probably just single family homes, duplex, uh, quadruplex, that sort of thing. But nothing like the flip and sell or 100, 100 deals a year sort of thing. Maybe just get five to 10 houses and live off off that income? It's a hard question for me to answer because it's something I've struggled with so many times. I'll just tell you how I approach it. And it's a mixture of my answer as a financial advisor versus my answer as a person, um, as just Joshua, you know, a friendly, you know, guy that you can have a drink with. Um, and there's a difference between those two. The biggest, one of the biggest financial regrets that I have is so heavily funding IRAs, uh, Roth IRAs when I was younger. Now, um, simply because when I look in retrospect at what I could have done with the money if someone had given me a different path, it, it's hard for me to see I would be financially independent at this point if I had if I had, had a different plan. And so in my mind, it comes down to what your goals are. Uh, for me, my goal is financial independence. And when I look at the situation that we face today and I look at the uh, mainstream investments that are offered in mainstream capital markets, uh, I don't know what the future will hold. Um, I do know that we're facing a difficult headwind. 
Uh, I'm not convinced that the world's going to melt down and and we're going to face just utter to- utter complete total financial collapse and all of a sudden the world's going to melt down. I'm not convinced of that. I'm also not convinced that co- companies are not governments. Uh, so just because the U.S. government's fiscal situation is a disaster doesn't necessarily mean that Apple can't make a lot of money along the way. But when I look at on the whole the capital markets, um, I'm at least convinced that – we face a challenging time. And one of the most di- coming in the future, um, will the next decade be a massive bull market? Uh, I, I don't see it. Does that mean it's not something good to participate in? I, I don't think so. I mean, that's up to each individual person. Probably the biggest frustration that has happened, though, is I turned, I turned 18 and started investing in 2003. Okay, and today it's 2016. And when I look at that time period, the S and P 500 has basically slid sideways, um, depending on how you depending on how you calculate it. And that's really frustrating because, and this is partly where again I'm just speaking as a person now, not as a financial advisor. What's really frustrating is to say I thought that this was going to lead me to be rich, and then I turned 30, and I'm like, but yeah, okay, I'm doing better than most of my friends. But still, I thought I did things. I thought I did things better than that, uh, and that's frustrating because I guess maybe it's my age or maybe it's something. But it's like I want faster results. So at this point, I view publicly traded securities. Um, for me personally, I view them as well. It might work for some money over the long term. Um, just throw it away, throw it in there, and see if it works. But I don't view it as anything that's actually going to lead me to become wealthy. Um, and that was the conviction that I came to um, from um, – that was the conviction I came to over time. Uh, as I said, it's my own business activities and my own investment activities that are going to lead to my becoming wealthy. And so I should be focusing on that. In retrospect, if I were to do it over again – I would not put any money into IRAs. I would not put money, any money into 401ks. I would have gone 100% the, the route of entrepreneurship um, and I would go 100% of that because having experienced the control that that gives me, the wealth that that can create, the wealth of lifestyle and the financial wealth, the rates of return, it is just so much more powerful than putting money aside for 40 years where I can't touch it. I can't give that advice to everybody, and this is where it has to be, okay, what is personal financial advice? If somebody has a career that they enjoy, a job that they really love, um, they're not going to – they're not going to – and they're just not going to make the time to to spend time – they're not going to take the time to spend their evenings going and you know knocking on doors looking for rental houses. I can't tell them that that's what they should do. Their best advice is to put money in a 401k and leave it alone for 30 or 40 years and enjoy their time in their career and with their family. But that's not me. So when I give advice, yeah, I have to answer, am I a financial advisor asking you about what's best for you? Or am I just Joshua saying, here's what I'm doing and here's, and here's why? At this point, <laughs> if you get many – I spoke with – I've always felt a little bit bad about my opinion because it's so out of the – it's so – it's out of the orthodoxy of financial planning. I'm, I'm on the fringes of the financial planning industry. But when I look at it, I recognize what makes financial planners rich and financial advisors rich is not how much money they have in their company's retirement plan. What makes them rich is the fact that they make a lot of money in their, in their business. And when I, I was speaking with one financial advisor privately who is a leader in – public leader in the industry um, – I asked him the question because I was kind of feeling bad about the fact. I said, I don't know if I'm ever going to put money in an IRA or 401k again. And he said, Joshua, I haven't invested in my tax-deferred retirement accounts in, I think he said, a decade. Uh, and, he's, and, it, and, he's, and this is somebody who teaches all the ins and outs. He said, I haven't done it in a decade. And he says, because i got too many other great opportunities for it. So I guess that's the the jump. When I was younger, I could never figure out how to make that jump into the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, and so I just was working a job and putting my money in my retirement accounts. But now I've got opportunities before me. I've got more opportunities than I can handle. And it's and now I look at if I can execute, which is a big, uh, big question. If I can execute, the rates of return are so astronomical and that they just build and build and build that of what benefit is it to me to to buy an index fund in my IRA? 
uh, it just isn't isn't a benefit to me. So, I, I it's why it's so difficult to me on the show because you got you got to ask what do I want? And if people don't have a burning desire, uh, I mean, entrepreneurship is not for everybody. I see the value of it, but if people don't have a burning desire, they're not going to p- force them push through the hard times, and they're better off just buying mutual funds. Um, <laughs> does that help? Yeah, that answers my question. Uh, thank you very much. I would at least. At this point, I would at least do a lot less, um, and I would recommend uh, – I've tried to figure out what would be an ideal percentage um, of, of something, and if you were going to save you – know, for me, if I were going to save 30% of my income um, or 40% of my income, I'd want to put maybe 10% into just cash uh, in the bank. That's my buffer, my, my emergency fund type of thing, and that should grow over time. I'd put, I don't know, 10% into um, – Mutual funds is my, hey, if I screw up my whole business, then I have a backup plan and then I'd put 20% into my entrepreneurial activities. But those that's just kind of a, a mental model to say that the big return is going to come from business or from active investments. But you could screw it all up. I could today completely torpedo myself, torpedo radical personal finance. That's why I want some rental properties um, in my portfolio because that gives me a fallback plan. So if I torpedo radical personal finance, I've still got a, a fallback plan. And I think every business owner needs the same thing. So it's not so much one versus another. It's a matter of your goals and your stage uh, of life and business. That's the best I got. If you come up with something better, let me know. I'll have you on the show to, to teach us how to think about it. <laughs> All right, next question. Who Somebody yeah, had jumped in right. previously. Hey, Joshua. Uh, John from uh, Pittsburgh. A uh, question about uh, uh, creating an income plan off of uh, retirement accounts, well, a combination of retirement accounts and uh, 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 non-retirement accounts. Uh, we've spoken about it before in the past. You gave some ideas like uh, the 72T rule, I think it was, and uh, Roth conversion ladders. But other than those two, um, are there any other tools that I should be looking into? Uh, you know, the 72T doesn't really uh, appeal to me. Uh, I'm sure a portion of a Roth conversion ladder would be part of the plan, but are there any other additional ways to um, liberate qualified uh, account money without, you know, uh, paying penalties or, or limiting the penalties? Um, and related to that, would you, uh, I guess, I guess the answer is probably yes, but uh, would you start your income plan with your non-qualified accounts uh, and drawing from those first? So the assumption here is that you're pulling from your retirement accounts before age 59 and a half. And the reason I'm pointing that out is it's a very different answer to the question. <clears throat> if you are 59 and a half and older, you're not dealing with the tax consequences. You're dealing with how do I create a sustainable um, income stream for life. If you're under the age of 59 and a half, then um, you've got to deal with this tax thing. So let's just stay focused on the tax thing. Uh, I only know a few ways, and you've listed them off. So number one is pull money from non-qualified accounts. Uh, That's rule number one. Um, Rule number two is to do a 72T distribution under the various options that you have under the 72T distribution. Um, Idea three is to do the Roth conversion ladder, which is where you convert the money into a Roth, leave it there for five years to let it season for five years, and then you take out your principal contributions. or beyond that, um, you just take it out and pay the penalty and go. Uh, there's the limited exception if you're retiring from a job or you have a 401k, you can take it at 55 instead of at 59 and a half. But essentially, those are the only ones that I can that I know of, or at least I can think of off the top of my head without having prepared the outline. Those are the only ones that work. And this is why, well, I mean, this is why I've become much less bullish on retirement accounts than in the past. Is one of the features of retirement accounts is it's a deal with the devil. You give up some of the taxation, which is a major savings, but you also give up the control uh, and you give up the use of the money. Uh, and so those things, uh, those are the only options that I can that, that I know of right off the top of my head. Uh, now, sometimes I think it might be okay just to take the money out early, especially in an early retiree scenario, because if you actually calculate the 10% penalty tax, if you're a high-income household and you're working, 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 which is kind of the, the, the scenario we're describing here, high-income household, working to save money, funding all these accounts, if you go through your actual cost of living, assuming that they're going to be lower, 
Um, you can, and you, if you have some income source from part-time employment, if you have some income source from uh, non-qualified accounts, and then if you have to take, you know, eight thousand dollars a year from a four hundred one k to make up the difference, but total your your other sources of income are, are relatively low tax, then all you're going to basically be faced with is a ten percent penalty. So let, let's just run that example. Let's say that you're taking ten thousand dollars from a non qualified account. Well. That may be taxed at the long-term capital gains rate, which, depending on your earned income, could possibly be zero. So you don't have a lot of income there from earned income. You're in a low tax bracket. You could be taking Roth IRA um, contributions out, um, just doing distributions from a Roth IRA. So that's not those are non that's non taxable income. Um, you could have some a part-time work, and uh, if you have a part-time side business, then some of your expenses are being covered by that business. And so there's, uh, I guess, a tax benefit from that business. Well, now when you're taking out money from a 401k, you're just going to pay your 10% penalty tax plus probably a pretty low um, income tax rate. So it could be much less than what you would have paid of taking the money out as a high income, um, high earner. Uh, So it could work. Um, Do you want to give any more specifics, John, or is that general enough of an answer uh, for you? Uh, yeah, that was a that was a good uh, answer. I think it answered almost everything I I was questioning. Uh, I guess at this point I'm at a point where I have a good amount of savings, and more than half of it's already in qualified accounts. And I'm wondering if uh, continuing to uh, you know outside the the conversation of entrepreneurship and, and building businesses externally, uh, I was just wondering about you know at this point since I know my plan is to try to. Uh, you know, do something uh, to retire early, would it be more beneficial at this point to stop funding the qualified accounts and get the tax benefit now if I know I'm going to be turning around to get a penalty later or uh, having jumped through hoops to get it more penalized? But uh, overall, I'm glad to know that I'm aware of the tools available and there's not some missing uh, 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 way to do this that I just completely ignore of. One of the ideas that you could possibly use um, that could help you would be run a calculation of what your portfolio uh, will be worth uh, under the current balances with some whatever you estimate your investments to return at your age 65. So what I mean is let's say that I'm talking with somebody who is a 45-year-old person who's wanting to retire early and they've got $500,000 in their 401k. And they're saying, well, I could keep funding this 401k or in a few years I'm going to be 50 and I really want to diminish my savings in this account so I can do something else over here that's going to be a little bit more flexible to fund my my early retirement bridge. Well, most people don't ever sit down and calculate how much their portfolio could be worth. Um, Let me make it a little more extreme. Let's say that instead of the person's 45, let's just move them up to 35. And so they're having the same same. Discussion. Well, five hundred thousand uh, dollars. So five hundred thousand dollars present value at thirty-five. Fast forward thirty years, and let's use a, an eight percent uh, return with with no further contributions. Oops, hit the wrong button. Okay, five hundred thousand dollars present value. Thirty years for our N, eight percent for our I, zero for our payments. Our future value at age sixty-five is five million dollars. So that's a huge number. Which let me just do it again, make sure I didn't mess it up because that seems unusually high to me. Five hundred thousand dollars, thirty years, eight percent, zero payments, future value, five million dollars. Okay, so that thirty-five year old who has five hundred thousand dollars in their account, if they're sitting there and looking at that portfolio and saying, "Man, I can't live on a four percent rule of this. Uh, five hundred thousand dollars, four percent is only." $20,000 a year. I can't live on this. But if you flip it and you say, well, if this money just sits here and grows for the next 30 years and for the next five years, I'm going to take all the money that I was putting in that 401k and use that to build the business. At the end of the day, I've got $5 bucks at age 65. Uh, and so I think this type of approach – and then for the earlier question from – I think it was um, Matthew who was talking about the TSP – 
this type of approach, I think, can be a good way to solve that 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 question. Okay, I've invested a few hundred thousand dollars here. This is going to be fine. Conservative assumptions, assuming normal market conditions, this account will grow to be a few million bucks. Okay, I've got enough money there. Now, can I divert my money in some other way uh, that's going to really be um, more efficient for me or something like that? $5 million is probably enough in, in your account at 65, uh, especially if you are an early retiree. So that would be my answer to you. All right, next question. Hey Joshua, uh, this is Matthew again. I'm gonna hop off. I'm gonna just ask another question. I don't. It went. We had a little bit of dead air there, and uh, I guess my co- concept is on the uh, Facebook group. Uh, there's been a concept thrown around. The bank on yourself concept has been thrown around here uh, lately, and I would. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind to just give a brief description of what that concept is. Sure, sure. Uh, so I'm the one who put that out there because I am doing a research project. So let me explain. Uh, there's two major brand like marketing names. One is called Infinite Banking, and the other is called Bank on Yourself. Uh, and the idea here is it's a marketing term for the use of whole life insurance policies as an investment plan. Um, the most popular publicized one is Bank on Yourself, which was a, a twin term that was coined by a lady named Pamela Yellen. She wrote a book. Um, it's had a couple of versions and a couple of editions. Uh, the, the Probably the more original, I'm not sure at all the timeline, but infinite banking was a term coined by a man named Nelson Nash. The idea is this. Instead of, in, instead of or in addition to investing in other um, – uh, in other types of investments, 401ks. If you purchase large whole life insurance policies, um, you can use those policies through the use of cash values and cash uh, distributions and cash value loans. You can use those policies to fund the things in your life. And so you can use it as a financing mechanism. Um, lots of people are very negative on the use of whole life insurance for investment purposes, for cash value accumulation, uh, and there's lots of good reasons for that. Most whole life insurance policies underperform. Most of them are very expensive internally by companies that don't do a good job with their insurance costs. Uh, most of the policies are poorly designed, and so they just don't they don't generate very impressive rates of return on your cash value, a couple or three percent. Uh, the good thing is uh, that Pamela Yellen's advice, she's built a whole organization around it, is she's in- encouraging people to use policies that are properly structured. So they're using traditional whole life policies from mutual insurance companies. That's an important point, mutual insurance company versus a stock insurance company. Uh, in general, all things being equal, the the whole life insurance policy by a mutual insurance company will always outperform the whole life insurance policy by a stock company because the dividend and profits that are usually sent to stockholders in a stock life insurance company are credited to the whole life insurance policy from a mutual company. So if everything else is equal, in general, a mutual policy. Policy with a mutual company will outperform. The next thing is she's using policies that are designed for cash value accumulation. So these policies are what in the industry they call overfunded, um, and they have large amounts of what are called paid-up additions or additional cash values. This is extra money that you put into the policy beyond the basic premiums, which all the extra money bypasses the insurance costs, which are the downside of an insurance policy. You have to always cover the cost of life insurance, and this extra money goes straight to the cash value. So this improves the rates of return. So I decided – I've generally uh, – my, my position on life insu- whole life insurance, um, I've sold whole life insurance. I own whole life insurance. I see it as a useful tool for some amount of what I call my longer-term safer dollars. So the money that I have in my family's whole life insurance policies is part of just the backup of backup plans. It's it's not um, subject to market risk. It's very very safe. It's very very efficient. Um, I use it's never going to have it's never going to make me rich. It's never just going to have a huge rate of return. I view it as my some of my last resorts. Um, I expect probably. Who knows where it'll be, but I expect four or five percent annual rates of return on on the policies over the course of my lifetime. My hope is that I never use the money from them. I just leave them as life insurance policies for my family. Um, I also view them as part of my emergency funds. So because the policies are very, very liquid, um, generally with most uh, whole life insurance companies, in about twenty four hours you can get the money out of the policy through the through a bank transfer. 
legally, the companies are not obligated to give it to you that fast. The legally, I think it's six months um, is is what is required. So depending on whether we're going to do technical financial planner speak, the answer is cash life insurance cash values are not liquid. They're not a cash equivalent. Uh, that's technical financial speak because of that uh, way the contracts are written. However, in practicality, um, when I've taken loans against life insurance policies in the in the past, I can get the money in 24 hours. So I view um, I use them as part of my um, emergency funds. It allows me to keep um, cash that I want to have if I needed an emergency. Allows me to keep it there. It's growing without current taxation. Uh, and it's growing at a decent rate, but it's going to be there if I have a deal. I see a car that's for sale and it's way below value, or I, you know, wind up in a bind, and I just need short-term temporary money. That's what it's for. Now the key, so I've I I own whole life insurance policies. I've sold them. I've always sold them carefully, and I've generally stayed away from the overly hyped approach. Um, what I despise about the life insurance discussion is people sell it as an alternative to other investments. And the war is usually between, um, well, how is the stock market going to do versus life insurance? And this war goes back decades, but people always make these comparisons. I view the comparison of a life in- of a whole life insurance policy to a stock market as an unacceptable comparison. They do not have the same risk characteristics. They don't have the same return characteristics. They are very different asset classes. And I think personally, there's a place for both depending on your financial plan. So I decided, however, okay, so people, so I've, I've generally been negative in the past on bank on yourself because they're very aggressive at using policies as the number one tool of wealth accumulation, and they're very aggressive about promising to use the policies for things before, for, for not only um, life insurance, but also for retirement and also to fund other things. So fund purchases such as buying a car, things like that. Personally, my opinion is that's an un- inappropriate plan for the use of life insurance. Uh, however, I decided to take – I had lots of people asking me uh, about it, including a family member saying, Joshua, please go and look into it. So I ordered 13 books um, on the subject. I ordered every popular book I could find that's written on this strategy to, to – and I'm in the process of reading them all and just searching for it. I'd, I started with Bank on Yourself and the next time I'm going to read Infinite Banking and finish them all out and just try to 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 flesh it out and to really understand um, there's one thing that I have always struggled with, and it's basically the key point in the discussion, and I will get an answer before I do the show um, on it. Uh, but the question that you have is essentially, can you double dip on the money that's in a life insurance policy or not? So usually when you take money out of a life insurance policy, uh, so let's say I have $100,000 of cash value in a life insurance policy that's growing based upon the dividend crediting rate of the company that I, that I, with whom I own the policy. Now, what if I want to take $50,000 out and uh, invest that in a piece of real estate? Now, I'm going to be paying interest on the money into my life insurance policy. But the question is, do I continue to receive dividends on the money and can I invest the money on the side and get my um, – uh, get my uh, uh, my investment return there. Uh, and that's what uh, the argument that's usually presented is with the companies that the uh, bank on yourself and infant banking people use is they talk about um, – forget the – I'm blanking on the technical term just right here on the phone – but the, about the dividend crediting uh, process. But personally, I think it's a little misleading. So I'm going to get some actuaries on the phone, see if I can interview one of them for the show is my intent and really dig to the bottom of it because it's something that it's very complicated. I struggle to get it myself. And so I want to dig to the bottom of it before I present it on the show. But that was where the conversation came from. Generally, my opinion, I am not interested in using life insurance policies as my own personal bank. Um, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, if I change my opinion after reading all these books, I'll let you know. Uh, but I do like to have it as one of my assets for those longer-term, safer dollars. that help, Matthew? Yes, it does. Thank you very much, Joshua. All right. I'll take one more question if uh, somebody would like to ask uh, one more question. Hey, Joshua. I've got a question. Go ahead. Tell me your name and where you're calling from, please. Uh, this is Mark from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. Go ahead, Mark. Um, so my wife and I are um, – currently about three to four years from financial independence. Um, We're both uh, currently employed and um, we just started a new business that we're hoping um, in the next three to five years could 
start to provide um, most or all of our daily living expenses. We've also got a um, investment portfolio that we uh, obviously have been contributing to for um, since we started working, and it's currently um, about 80% stock, 20% bond. Um, and we, we settled on that allocation before we had started the business or anything. That was just kind of after doing a bunch of reading and going to the Boglehead forums and stuff like that, that's kind of what we settled on. Um, my, so our intention is that hopefully um, in the next three to four years, we can switch to just working on the business um, and uh, you know leaving full-time employment, just working on the business and then letting the investment portfolio grow. Um, my question is on the bonds. We've been thinking about dumping the bonds and just after listening to some more podcasts, listening to some more, um, you know, people talk who have uh, done their early financial independence thing um, is that maybe we don't want to uh, have any bonds in our portfolio that we would just want to leave it, especially if we don't think we're going to need to start drawing on it right away, just leave it in stocks. And um, I know you don't, uh, you know, really have the same investment philosophy in terms of having the, um, the marketable securities, you know, being such a high percentage of your net worth, but I um, just want to get your thoughts on that. Um, we also um, may want to start adding some uh, real estate investment down the road as well. So our thought it would be, you know, between the business and the real estate um, that could give us enough diversification away from stocks that, um, you know, maybe we don't need the bonds, but just wanted to throw that out there and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I can easily give you my just because. Um, and go ahead and mute yourself, please, um, Matthew. Yes. Um, it, I could easily give you my financial planner answer um, to that question, uh, and I certainly just because my personal investment philosophy has changed, I don't. I, I have no problem answering the question. Uh, in general. I think one of the biggest mistakes investors make is transitioning their portfolios to be too heavy in bonds um, as compared to stocks. However, nobody would say that an 80-20 allocation is somehow a conservative portfolio. Um, That is a very aggressive uh, portfolio allocation. If you look at what you're trying to accomplish and you look at the academic uh, data, uh, I think you've got to – You've got to filter it a little bit. So most of the academic studies on portfolio allocation are – most of that stuff is based upon funding everything from your portfolio. So if you imagine the situation, traditional 65-year-old retirement, uh, you're retiring, you've got a million dollars in a portfolio, and you're going to live on this portfolio for the rest of your life and just have that portfolio income. Having an all-stock portfolio would be very, very volatile. It would have lots and lots of ups and downs. And so that volatility is something that most investors can't handle. They can't handle it financially uh, in that if you, if your portfolio is down by 40 or 50%, um, where are you going to get the money to pay your light bill? So they can't handle it financially and they also can't handle it emotionally. Most people do not are not emotionally equipped to handle – wild fluctuations in the value of their investment portfolio. Um, the data proves it. Our own personal experiences prove it. Just ask yourself, how are you How are you reacting to the market swings here of late 2015, early 2016? That will tell you a lot about your emotional um, stability. So because of that, the, the, the advice is we need a, a more balanced portfolio. And what bonds in a portfolio do simplistically is they smooth – the returns. They give you current income. They smooth the volatility out, but they also eat up your return. So for me, when I had diversified portfolios, my philosophy was I didn't own any bonds, um, 100% stock because I was dealing with a portfolio that's for retirement, not for current income, for retirement. And when you're looking at a 40-year time horizon to retirement, I'm looking at this and saying, number one, it's locked in a retirement account. I'm not going to use it. Number two, for me, 
I have a high degree of emotional confidence in the in the face of of stock market fluctuations. I get excited when they go down, and I say, "What well, can I buy?" I don't get I don't get freaked out about it. I've I've done my homework. I know that I should expect, on average, about a fourteen percent every year decline in the in the in the indexes. I know I should expect about a somewhere around a thirty percent decline every three years, and I know about every decade or two there's going to be a fifty percent decline in the market. So because I know that. I'm going to operate with that as my emotional base. I'm not going to freak out because the Dow is down a few hundred points. So I can handle the emotional volatility. And when I look at the impact of, of an extra 50 or 100 basis points over a 40-year horizon, um, I personally, I like the, I like the extra money. Uh, so I've always geared my own investments as aggressively to stocks as I possibly could. Um, there's not that much of a difference, though, in returns to 80-20, and here's where um, I'd have to refer you to your portfolio manager, um, to, and you'd have to talk to them. Um, this is a relatively easy thing to run. If you run the standard, you can run the standard deviation on these portfolios. Talk to whoever is involved with your um, with your portfolio. If you're if you're managing it yourself, you can pull the data. And just read the prospectus and dig into the standard deviation. Dig into the volatility. You can dig into the ratios of the portfolio, and you can see if you are acceptable. What I think is an is an easier thing to do. What I find easier is I think financial planning is a tool that can go in the face of portfolio management. So for me, I would rather have an extra hundred thousand dollars of cash in the bank and an all stock portfolio. Than an 80-20 analysis and less cash in the bank. And what what I'm trying to do for me is use financial planning, use capital location as a way to solve that problem. I want the highest return from that portfolio, but I'm going to make sure that I'm not risking my current emergency fund and my current eating expenses and things like that or my current business reserves – uh, for that goal. So if you needed any of this money for business, uh, I'd pull it out in cash. I wouldn't keep it in bonds. I'd put, I, I just, I would keep it aside in the cash account, however much you need to start the business. If you need money for emergency fund, for me, I would put it into cash. And that to me is how I feel more comfortable handling it, keeping the balance of the portfolio as aggressive as possible. Um, I couldn't give you that's a, that's the that's the limit of the specificity that I should go to um, in this type of financial discussion. That's how I've approached it, and those are my opinions. Uh, beyond that, I just say look at some of the investment statements and the portfolio management tools, and you'll be able to see the answer. Is that helpful? Yeah, very much. Thanks, Joshua. Cool. All right, I'm going to um, close this off there um, today for the questions. Thank you all for calling in. I've enjoyed um, just interacting with you guys. Uh, I'd be happy. I, I intend to do these regularly going forward as my goal uh, than to release them as a Friday Q&A shows. I really like the, the interaction back and forth. I hope you do too. Um, so check back next time and happy to have everyone on the call. I thank you guys for calling in and you can expect to hear uh, these. Uh, you can expect to hear these questions go out on the show tomorrow. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.